Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Rebecca Robbins. It is Thursday, September 24th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First up, STAT's Andrew Joseph talked to dozens of experts about how the COVID-19 crisis will play out over the next year. He joins us to explain. Next, our colleague Aaron Broadwin calls in to tell us about the technologies that allow people's health to be tracked continuously from wherever they are. Finally, we'll bring you another lightning round featuring hot takes on this week's political fights over COVID-19 and vaccines, which has been so much fun. But first, a word from our sponsor. RNAi Therapeutics treat the root genetic cause of disease rather than the symptoms by silencing the expression of the genes that make disease-causing proteins. Alnylam has pioneered RNAi Therapeutics by translating the Nobel Prize-winning discovery of RNAi into an innovative new class of medicines, which we believe has limitless possibilities. Learn more at alnylam.com slash statnews. That's A-L-N-Y-L-A-M dot com forward slash statnews. a lot of time on this podcast talking about the immediate future of the COVID-19 crisis, whether that's data on vaccines, the latest infection rates, or the implications for November's election. But we're undoubtedly going to be living with this pandemic well into 2021 and beyond. With that in mind, Stats Andrew Joseph spoke to dozens of experts to map out how COVID-19 will change American life and the pivotal moments that might change things for the better or for the worse. Drew, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So before we get into some specifics uh, from your story, can you tell us more about the thinking behind the project as a whole? Like, how did you go about assembling a roadmap for a crisis that has repeatedly proved to be unpredictable? Yeah, so this idea came from Rick Burke, our executive editor. And I think that the timing aspect of it is that we're about six months or so into when the pandemic really started affecting all Americans' lives, because that was back in about mid-March when things really started to pick up here and, and activity started to shut down at the same time. It ran on the first day of the fall, and there's been like a lot of attention to what the fall and winter might hold for the pandemic. Um, and so that was sort of the impetus behind it. And I'm always a little bit nervous about doing forward-looking things because I, I don't really want to make predictions as a reporter. So what I did is really just try to talk to as many experts as I could and across a, a wide variety of fields to sort of see how their expertise informed what the future might look like or some of the questions that might get answered, even if they didn't know what those answers might look like, when we might have a better picture of those questions. So some of the potential turning points have been widely discussed, but one that might have slipped under the radar is holiday travel, which dovetails with the end of the semester for many colleges that are doing in-person classes. What did experts tell you is at stake as we move closer to Thanksgiving? Yeah, I mean, a few of them were like, I'm not planning on seeing family over the holidays. And um, I think those those were the people who would involve like plane travel. Um, But I think there's an understanding that people will want to see their families over Thanksgiving and over the December holidays, particularly because, you know, they might not have really seen them this year or seen them as much as they would normally And I think there's just like a great concern that all those people traveling around the country at the same time is that, you know, if students are able to make it through semester, that's when they kind of go back. It could basically just seed new outbreaks in places that have things under control or compound sort of existing outbreaks. Because like if you think about it, like travel is how the virus moved around the country to begin with. And so just having more people moving around just sort of increases the likelihood that uh, to sort of expand the spread. Um, And so it, it could really set us back, I guess, is the is the concern. 
So we've talked a lot about the development process for COVID-19 vaccines and the possibility that one could get an emergency authorization in a matter of months. But realistically, a vaccine is unlikely to be widely available until next summer. And so, of course, there would need to be a massive vaccination campaign for the U.S. to reach herd immunity. What did you learn about how that might play out? Yeah, so I think there are two parts of that question. The first is making sure there's enough vaccine available to people and it can get to people. So there's Obviously, part of the Operation Warp Speed uh, program right now is focused on manufacturing vaccines at risk, even though they're not through the trials yet. So that means some of those vaccine doses that are being produced right now might be sort of destined for the garbage if the trials turn out negative. But the hope is to really have a lot of supply and to get supply sort of cranking out so there is enough vaccine to reach people. And then there's also sort of this behind the scenes apparatus involving storage and logistics and transportation to make sure the vaccines get to where they need to go. So there's that's the first part is making sure there is vaccine available. The second part is making sure that people are willing to get the vaccines because no matter how great a vaccine is, if people won't get the shot, then it doesn't matter. And there's obviously like a lot of vaccine hesitancy in this country as it is. So there's already a campaign sort of being built in the government right now to sort of figure out how do we reach people? How do we sort of connect with traditionally hard to reach groups or people who don't have um, access to regular medical care? Because the way out of this pandemic is really through vaccinating to the point of herd immunity. And that could be probably 50 to 70% of the population um, would be, need to be protected for the spread to die out. And that's part of the concern about the politicization of the vaccine evaluation process is if, if that makes people even more wary of a vaccine, then that maybe um, increases the likelihood that some people won't want to get any vaccine. There's an old saying that you can't have a peeing section in a swimming pool. And the same principle, I think, applies to pandemics. We as a planet aren't safe until the virus is under control everywhere. So with that in mind, you know, we're less than a year away from the rescheduled 2020 Olympics, which will bring people from around the world to Tokyo. What needs to happen for that to be safe? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, I wonder if, you know, it gets to the point where they won't allow spectators, for example, from certain countries, um, if those countries are having sort of out of control outbreaks at the time. I think what's interesting about the Olympics potentially is it could come at a time when vaccines are becoming more and more widely available, but there's this idea that vaccine nationalism could take hold and that wealthy countries will try to reserve doses first for their own citizens. And, and you see that happening in um, these contracts that rich countries are, are striking with vaccine makers to secure, you know, hundreds of millions of doses. And so I think that'd be like kind of a fascinating thing of what happens if come the Olympics, like a lot of wealthy countries, you know, are well on their way to vaccinating millions of people, but poor countries just don't have the access to vaccines. And there are some programs, like there's one called COVAX that's sort of seeking to address that. But I think it's it's not like out of the realm of possibility that next summer there will be just like a striking disparity in vaccine access around the world. So if you make the arguable mistake of reading comments on the internet, you'll find a few people underneath your story complaining that it seemed too pessimistic about the coming 12 months. I was curious, having spent weeks talking to dozens of experts from a bunch of fields, as you mentioned, how are you personally feeling about the future? Are you more or less optimistic than you were before starting this project? I think there are certain things that I find heartening, like um, there are maybe hopefully, you know, these new therapies coming in the form of monoclonal antibodies, just overall clinicians are getting better at treating patients. And just like the progress on vaccines has been pretty remarkable. Even And again, like they're not proven yet, but like just to get to this point has been pretty amazing. So I think that's sort of heartening. 
But at the same time, when you kind of sort of zoom out and just think of like, the, particularly in the US, just like how many people are still getting sick and how many people are still dying and just like are kind of like shrugging of shoulders toward it is that's disheartening. But I guess in a way, I feel like there's value in having some grasp of what might be coming or just so you can sort of like mentally prepare yourself. Like I think, you know, fatalism is bad, but also sort of like blind optimism is bad. Um, and so just like sort of hopefully people realizing that a lot of these precautions that we take now, like masks or, or some form of distancing, or, you know, we can't go to concerts, like that might be with us for a long time, even as vaccines start to get rolled out, because it will take a long time for enough people to get vaccinated. So I guess, I don't know, maybe people find that sort of pessimistic, but I think sort of mentally preparing yourself can kind of, I don't know, gird yourself for the long months ahead. Well, Drew, thanks for doing this important story and for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Next up, we're going to talk about a field of health tech that you're going to want to keep an eye on, and that's remote patient monitoring. So we're talking about technologies that allow people's health to be tracked continuously. That ranges from smartwatches equipped with electrocardiographs to inhalers with built-in digital trackers. The surge in activity and interest in this field has only been accelerated as the pandemic has kept people away from the doctor's office. Joining us to talk about remote patient monitoring is our Bay Area colleague, Aaron Broadwin, who just put out a really comprehensive stat report on the subject. Aaron, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, everybody. So Aaron, why is remote patient monitoring taking off? What do these technologies allow for that traditional ways of keeping tabs on patients' health do not do? Remote patient monitoring, or what I like to call kind of smart health tracking, really just enables people to consistently track conditions that otherwise they might be dependent on sporadically going into a doctor's office to check up on. So chronic conditions like diabetes, asthma, things like that. And um, really key to all of this happening is access to data. So for diabetes, that might be access to regular blood glucose readings. For asthma, that might be regular access to information that tells them, you know, how regularly they're having a flare-up and how regularly they're taking their asthma medication. So in your report, Erin, you describe the rise of a new breed of patient-consumer that's driving demand for these technologies. Tell us about this proverbial person. (laughs) Sure thing. Sure thing. So let's keep it simple. I think these lines are increasingly getting blurred. You're seeing consumers both acting as patients and patients acting as consumers. I think all of us want data in in our hands and, and kind of a sense of control over our own health issues, which previously may have seemed out of our hands. And as Big tech companies, Apple, Amazon, Google, are increasingly catering to that, along with digital health companies like Omada, Livongo, et cetera. You know, whether it's with devices or with platforms, these categories of patient or consumer are just increasingly one and the same. If you saw the recent Apple keynote, which was really interesting, it was their first virtual experience. What Apple likes to do here is they kind of introduce what later become medical devices as consumer gadgets. So I don't know if you saw them introduce their new blood oxygen feature, but nowhere in there did they say that that had FDA approval. And indeed it does not. It's simply a consumer gadget for now, but just like Apple did with its um, heart monitoring technology, what I'm guessing the company might do is later um, transform that, that consumer gadget into a medical device. So as we mentioned at the outset, 
The pandemic has really accelerated the adoption of remote patient monitoring technologies. Can you walk us through what's changed for the field since March? Sure thing. So when I look back at the field since March, which now seems like a million years ago, I just kind of think, you know, well, that escalated quickly. Food and Drug Administration came out with what are called emergency use authorizations or, or EUAs, in which they basically broadened a lot of the uses of these remote tools, including, you know, we were just talking about Apple, but the, the Apple Watch, which can screen for a heart condition called atrial fibrillation, actually got an EUA that essentially enabled it to be used as an actual diagnostic for the first time. So AliveCore also got an EUA so that its technology could be used more broadly by this consumer patient that we've been talking a lot about. In tandem with what the FDA has been doing with EUAs, CMS, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, have also been loosening their restrictions around telehealth. And when I've talked to a lot of people in this space, what they say is basically, we were surprised that these expansions weren't already the norm. And you've seen administrators like Seema Verma, for example, say they think it's going to be really hard to go back, meaning these technologies and the, the new loosened regulations are probably going to stick around. So, Aaron, you closely cover the big tech companies that are moving into healthcare. You mentioned Apple, for instance. How are all these companies approaching remote patient monitoring? So, yeah, we already talked about Apple, but a lot of these companies are looking to this space and increasingly seeing lots of opportunities as well as, obviously, dollar signs. Interestingly, I noticed a couple months ago, Facebook, which doesn't currently have any health tracking technologies that, that we know of, is hiring for a team that includes somebody who is an expert in a, a, the type of technology that both Apple and Fitbit use for their heart monitoring tech in their smartwatches, as well as somebody who is well-versed in interfacing with industry regulators. Fitbit, obviously, is already in this space and, and became part of Google last year. And Amazon just came out with its own health tracking device for the first time. It's called the Halo. So Erin, in your report, you sound a really important note of caution about what tech giants are focusing on, which is building out device capabilities instead of creating more comprehensive virtual care platforms that pair with devices. Why is this something to be concerned about? Remote patient monitoring tools really are nothing if they're not connected to a broader healthcare ecosystem. I mean, imagine you can have a smartwatch or any other kind of device telling you lots of things, but those things are kind of useless if you can't tie them back to the way that you traditionally um, get healthcare. I mean, I can imagine a smartwatch telling you, for example, that you have atrial fibrillation. Okay, you know, that's great. But if it doesn't connect back to my doctor, my ability to schedule appointments, my electronic medical record, all those kinds of things, there's not too much you can really do with it. So on a completely separate topic, before we let you go, I wanted to ask about a different area of your coverage, which is the flood of vaccine misinformation on social media. You published a great story this week about a maybe surprising company that has been really successful in dealing with this issue, which is Pinterest. And it's perhaps better known for wedding planning and home decor than it is for its public health savvy. So can you tell us what has Pinterest done right versus other social networks? Pretty simply, Pinterest has been bold where other tech companies have maintained the status quo. You've seen companies like Facebook and, and Twitter leaning on this argument of free speech 
um, and shying away really from action on what can be really harmful and dangerous misinformation, particularly related to health, and even when it includes posts that, for example, incite violence. And Pinterest has been saying for um, a couple of years now, you know, look, a lot of our customers, a lot of our users come to us for health and wellness content. And they've realized we have a responsibility here. We've got to do something. And so their answer to misinformation, particularly when it comes to misinformation related to vaccines, for example, and COVID-19, they've taken this, this brilliant approach, I think, where they just have zero tolerance. They have a clear health policy that's available. You can go to their website and see it. It's very simple and very clear. And if you post something that violates their community standards here for health information, misinformation, your posts are simply booted from the platform. You might even be suspended from the platform entirely or your your pin boards or um, basically what our, our pages can get taken down. And I think what's enabled them to do this is pretty smart. They're essentially seeing public safety and individual or community health as two sides of the same coin, which is something that a lot of other tech companies really aren't doing. Another thing that Pinterest is doing here, and this will be the last thing I say, but I think this is really smart and really key too, is they listen to public health experts, which is something that that is a little bit rare, unfortunately, I think, in the space. And so what that means is that when public health authorities come out with guidance around something like COVID-19, which is our understanding of COVID-19 is evolving rapidly. We have, you know, at the very beginning of the pandemic, people were saying, don't wear masks, don't hoard masks. We need to keep them for the people who really need them. And now, of course, everyone is very, very well understood to need and constantly wear masks. And what Pinterest does is its approach, while it's very hard line, is also flexible and takes into account what public health experts are saying. So, for example, at the beginning with that mask example, Pinterest initially didn't allow content related to uh, do-it-yourself face masks, for example. And then when that guidance changed, Pinterest changed its strategy too to allow that kind of content to come back to the platform. So if you want to learn more about remote patient monitoring, you can buy Aaron's special report on Stat's website. Aaron, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks again for having me. All right, lastly, we're going to bring another lightning round. And I feel like this is like the DC edition. So let's start with uh, Rand Paul versus Tony Fauci. Rebecca, what happened on Wednesday? So at a Senate committee hearing on Wednesday, the two of them faced off. And some useful context here is that the two of them have fundamental disagreements about the response to the pandemic. Paul has been openly critical of Fauci, questioning his statements and recommendations. Fauci, meanwhile, never loses his cool but he came really close on Wednesday. Let's listen in. Or they've developed enough community immunity right. that they're no longer having the pandemic because they have enough immunity in New York City to actually stop. I challenge that, uh, Senator. I'm afraid, because I'm afraid I, I want, please, sir, I would like to be able to do this because this happens with Senator Rand all the time. You were not listening to what the director of the CDC said, that in New York, it's about 22%. If you believe 22% is herd immunity. I believe you're alone in that. I feel like Fauci at this juncture, he's gotten to the point where he just doesn't give an F anymore. 
So do you think that's true? I, I think this whole time, and probably even more so as the political pressure intensifies on him, Fauci wants to continue doing this job, wants to continue being in a place where his expertise can influence policy. So I think he's still treading carefully. But yes, I think you're right. Discussions like this are probably hard to stay calm in. Yeah, I, I just feel like, you know, he's been so diplomatic, right, about all the criticisms, and he's been very careful to not lash out. And I think this moment at this hearing was kind of where you saw him. I don't want to say he broke down, but it was like he was getting to that point where he's just had enough and he felt like he had to push back. Particularly, there's that moment where, you know, it seemed like Paul was trying to kind of silence him by saying, you know, my time is up. And Fauci, you know, basically asked to continue. You know, he clearly wants to make this point. So elsewhere in Washington, over the weekend, Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar signed a bulletin that basically barred any health agencies, including the FDA, from implementing new rules and reserved that right to him. And so naturally, people read this as, you know, anything that the FDA might want to do with respect to the regulation of COVID-19 vaccines or therapeutics. People looked at it as a power grab on HHS's behalf. Is that a fair reading of what might be going on? So it seems hard to say at this point, right? They defended it as bureaucratic rulemaking and said that critics were overinterpreting a form of sort of internal housekeeping. And I think we're going to have to watch in the coming weeks to see if this new framework influences any decisions made. I think one point you made earlier, Damien, when we were talking about this is that Azar had a lot of power already. And I think this might formalize something that was already in place. And then on a related note, also this week, the FDA issues these stricter guidelines or like basically kind of higher standards for decision making around emergency use authorizations for the COVID-19 vaccines. And it seemed like this was an attempt by the FDA staff to kind of depoliticize the politics of vaccine regulation. So that's an admirable goal. But at a press conference on Wednesday, Trump said he, quote, may or may not, end quote, approve these new guidelines. And he suggested that they might be a political move. I think this is just, again, another example of where it's just a total mess down in D.C., right? <laughs> and like anything that happens has now been colored by politics. Well, and I wonder what the end goal is, because I think, you know, the, the writing is on the wall, or rather the pathway exists for the Trump administration to essentially force through an emergency authorization for a vaccine or multiple vaccines. But all of this is playing out in public and is, you know, presumably damaging to the public's confidence in the actual efficacy or safety of any one of those vaccines. And so I just wonder, like, if in fact that's what the administration is trying to do, how far have we thought through the end goal about something like that actually being a political boon, if that's what we're looking for? So are you suggesting that this all is kind of thought out, that this is kind of the plan all along is to kind of cast doubt on vaccines? Well, I, I guess, yeah, I mean, that's that's a a reasonable narrative, I suppose. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is if this is all thought out, it's poorly thought out because the path that we're headed down seems like no one will be happy once we reach the end of it. No, I agree. I think that's the problem here is that, you know, you can have some great science and we can develop these vaccines and people will debate, you know, the approvals and whether you know there's enough evidence, you know, upon efficacy and safety. But all this stuff just serves to undermine the credibility of the vaccines. Uh, and that's that's worrisome. That's something that should concern all of us, you know, who want to emerge from this pandemic. 
So moving on to the craziest story of the week, this one is about a public affairs officer at the NIH, so basically a PR guy for the agency. And as first reported by the Daily Beast, uh, this PR guy, Bill Cruz, has been living a secret double life as an online troll attacking the NIH and Tony Fauci on Twitter and the right-wing website Red State. So what do we make of this insane story? I mean, first of all, great reporting, right, by the Daily Beast. And this is one of those stories where you're like, yeah, this is 2020. Like, the, like I just I just started shaking my head, you know, when I read the story. Because, you know, you got a guy here who, who basically his day job, right, is to promote the work of the NIH, including the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, which, you know, Tony Fauci runs, right? But here he has this side gig where he's the managing editor of the right-wing conservative website Red State, where he's like, you know, basically calling the coronavirus a fraud and making fun of people who wear masks and, and making fun of and, you know, basically attacking Tony Fauci. And I think we have a little bit of insight here as journalists who occasionally work with agency press people. You know, these folks I found have been always by the book, very straightforward, I've always found them to be very professional and, and careful and measured. And this is the opposite of all those characteristics. <laughs> and uh, I guess we should say that um, after the story came out, William Cruz is retiring from the NIH. So there you go. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Heisen Tepanado, who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and which milestones in the next year you're most concerned about. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. <laughs>